Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope your 2022 is off to a good start and that the year continues to bring joy and prosperity to everyone. Speaking of 2022, CanMed 2022 is coming up fast. We are less than 120 days away from making our return to Pasadena, California for three full days of world-class cannabis educational content. It all starts on May 3rd with our full-day medical practicum led by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spellman, and Eloise Thiessen, NP. Each of them will share the latest medical cannabis research, including information on dosing, drug interactions, and different product types. They will also share the clinical experience they have acquired treating patients with medical cannabis. This really is a must-attend event for any healthcare professionals who are interested in recommending medical cannabis, but it's not limited to those folks. Anyone who is interested in learning more about medical cannabis can and should join us for this event. Head over to canmedevents.com practicum to learn more. That brings us to May 4th and 5th, the main event, CanMed 2022. Two full days of oral presentations, panel discussions, poster presentations, and industry exhibitors covering the latest advancements in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. We are really excited about this year's program. It might be our best yet. Just look at our keynote presenters. We have Dr. Ethan Russo presenting cannabis and psychiatry, Dr. Seth Crawford talking about innovations in hemp breeding, Grace Bandong will talk about building a comprehensive analytical testing program, and Dr. Bonnie Goldstein will discuss cannabis medicine for children. Those presentations alone are worth the price of admission, but please go to canmedevents.com to see the full schedule. And if you want a preview of what you can expect at CanMed 2022, check out the CanMed Archive, which is a searchable video library of all the past CanMed presentations and panels. You can find that at canmedevents.com as well, and there is a link in the show description. Which brings us to this episode's guest, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. As you just heard, Bonnie is a CanMed 2022 keynote presenter and an instructor on the medical practicum. In fact, Bonnie has presented at every CanMed event, starting with our very first at Harvard Medical School in 2016. There's a good reason for that. Bonnie is one of the country's most respected and experienced medical cannabis physicians, having treated thousands of patients with medical cannabis. She is the owner and medical director of Canna Center's Wellness and Education. She is clinical advisor to Canformatics, and she is the author of the book titled Cannabis is Medicine, How Medical Cannabis and CBD Are Healing Everything from Anxiety to Chronic Pain. Bonnie and I discussed examples where cannabis can replace traditional pharmaceutical drugs to treat a variety of conditions, including pain, anxiety, depression, sleep problems, and more. Bonnie offers guidance for selecting the right products for those conditions, as well as how to find the right dose. We also talked about a new paper that Bonnie co-authored that investigates whether cannabis can be used to treat patients with autism. Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, 
I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Canformatics. Canformatics is an early-stage biotechnology startup focused on developing cannabis-responsive biomarkers as a universal tool for measuring cannabis's and CBD's physiological impact. Canformatics provides healthcare professionals, patients, and medical cannabis producer processors with the tools and technology needed for developing evidence-based medical cannabis and CBD treatments and products. Canformatics' mission is to develop technologies that enable predictable and repeatable science-based medical cannabis outcomes that improve health and quality of life. To learn more, visit canformatics.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Good afternoon, Bonnie. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, welcome back. Um, It's been a while. You joined us way back on episode four of the podcast where we talked about um, cannabis medicine for pediatrics. Great episode, one of our most downloaded episodes. So any listeners who maybe came later to the podcast and haven't had a chance to go back and listen to that, I'll put a link in the show description. Definitely check that out. Uh, But today we're going to talk about a few different examples where cannabis can be used to replace some medications you might have in your own medicine cabinet. Now, some of these are over-the-counter drugs, others are prescriptions, but nevertheless, Bonnie, you've identified some common conditions where cannabis may be a safer or more effective option than traditional pharmaceuticals. So maybe a good place to start is with a drug that I bet is in everyone's medicine cabinet, and that's NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, your Aleve, your ibuprofen, Motrin. Tell us why cannabis might be a good substitute for these drugs. Sure. And just to add in, there are also prescription NSAIDs like meloxicam and diclofenac. So it's always good for people to always, anytime you get a prescription, go online, look up what kind of drug it is and read about the side effects. Just doesn't mean you're going to have the side effects, but it is good to read about it. So um, what we know about NSAIDs, of course, they're very common. Um, You know, we you go for a run and you know you're going to pay for it later, you pop a couple of ibuprofen or something like that. And so I think we don't really think about them very much, but we know that NSAIDs can disrupt uh, the GI tract and cause, you know, stomach ache for some people, uh, can aggravate heartburn for a lot of people. And even now, because of that heartburn, there's even now NSAIDs that come with antacids attached to them. So like a two in one. And the problem with antacids, if you use those long-term, is you buy a whole new slew of problems, including dementia, you can get kidney stones. So, um, But one of the main things that um, NSAIDs do that's pretty severe is to cause stomach ulcers, which if you're not familiar with what an ulcer is, it's basically a hole in the lining of your stomach or your intestines, and it can even cause a perforation, meaning a hole all the way through, which can be very dangerous. In fact, I had an elderly patient years and years ago, who came to me and said, you know, the first time we met, um, he said that he could no longer take NSAIDs because he had a uh, perforated stomach ulcer. He fainted in the um, grocery store and got hauled off to the hospital and he had emergency surgery for a perforated stomach ulcer. 
from taking long-term NSAIDs. So it does happen. It's, it's not as rare as one would think. In fact, there was a study back about 15 years ago that looked at chronic NSAID users and 71% of people who were chronic users, like, you know, daily, maybe a couple doses a day, had evidence of gut injury. So, you know, no joke there. Other very important symptoms that you can, or side effects you can get from NSAIDs too, which nobody really even seems to know about, are strokes, heart attack, and increased risk of cardiovascular death, especially when used for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people, you know, your back hurts and you want to take some ibuprofen, that's fine, or you have an injury for a few days, but long-term, probably not the safest medicine in terms of that, in terms of its profile. And one other thing too, there's negative effects on the kidneys. And a number of years ago, um, there was this initiative called Choosing Wisely. And if you people listening want to Google, just you know, Google Choosing Wisely initiative, and you'll see that what happened was um, this group went to various specialists and said, "Give us the top five things that were you know primary care doctors are kind of missing on, out on." Like meaning, they go to an orthopedic surgeon and say, "What's the top five things that maybe?" the primary care doctor shouldn't be doing in the face of back pain. But anyway, one of the things that kidney doctors put on their list was for people who have high blood pressure or diabetes not to use NSAIDs. And I can't tell you how many people I know who have high blood pressure and or diabetes and take NSAIDs. It can damage your kidneys. It can negate your blood pressure medicine. You have to be very careful. So, um, you know, Look, the FDA released a black box warning on NSAIDs back in 2005. And if you're not familiar with the black box warning, it is an extra special warning saying, you know, buyer beware. And when the FDA does that, that means there is, it's a serious thing. So we want to just be very careful with, you know, kind of chronic heavy use of NSAIDs. Right. And so... When we're talking about maybe cannabis being a replacement here for NSAIDs, is it more for that use case there, like for managing chronic pain, or could cannabis actually be used to relieve acute pain? Well, so the studies support the use of cannabis for chronic pain, but more so, remember, NSAIDs really target inflammation. They work on um, stopping a, a pro-inflammatory compound called prostaglandin. Um, by blocking the enzymes that make prostaglandin. Those are called COX enzymes, COX. And so um, when you're using NSAIDs, you really are targeting inflammation. Well, look, cannabis, all these compounds in cannabis, right? CBD, CBG, CBDA, THC, they're all potent anti-inflammatories. This is not even up for discussion anymore. There's multiple studies that clearly show anti-inflammatory effects. So, um, when somebody comes with acute pain, I have to be honest, the research doesn't support the use of acute pain, mm. but I have patients who, let's say, will have surgery, and they'll take opioids for maybe two days after surgery, and they introduce their cannabis, they're able to get off those opioids. And we know mm. that people stay, and we're going to talk about opioids, I hope, down the line here, but Absolutely. like, you know, if studies show that if you're on opioids for two weeks, you're likely to have some dependence and that's kind of gets to the slippery slope of dependence and addiction at that point. So having cannabis on board helps with that inflammation and it does seem to help with acute pain. I've had uh, a fair amount of patients um, tell me that it helps with acute pain and I, I don't disregard that. Um, I do think that um, 
research has lagged behind our clinical experience. And so it would be helpful to be able to do studies in humans, right? Because we're still prohibited. So I think the answer from research is still not there, but certainly clinically, I see that. Interesting. Okay. So if there's someone listening now who's maybe using NSAIDs somewhat regularly and maybe is a little alarmed about some of the things that we talked about and is thinking about maybe trying cannabis as a substitute, what kind of products should they be looking for maybe in terms of the cannabinoid profile or even just, you know, the, the route of administration? Sure. So, um, because all of these compounds, so CBD, THC, CBDA, THCA, CBG, CBC, I mean, I could go on and on, right? Um, lots of different, so remember the plant has over 140 different cannabinoids that have been described. There's what we call the main cannabinoids and some minor cannabinoids there. They're available. You can get them. Um, all of those that have less than 0.3% by weight THC are usually available online and it is buyer beware. So make sure you check test results. But you could really dial in your own um, regimen. There is no one regimen. So some people like CBD and are low-dose responders. For people who find low doses don't work that well, escalate the dose and see if you can find a cost-effective dose that can help. But what I have found is that combination, so CBD plus its precursor, CBDA, can be a very nice combination for inflammation because they both are potent anti-inflammatories. What we know about CBDA and THCA, which are the more are the raw cannabinoids, so those mm. are the compounds that come from the fresh plant before they're heated up. We used to think you have to heat them to activate them, but they actually have potent anti-inflammatory effects in the raw form. I find that combination can work really well, CBDA plus THCA. Um, and of course, THC. THC is a potent anti-inflammatory. Um, and so kind of playing with each one to see what works best. We have a saying that people are probably tired of hearing by this point, start low, go slow. But I'm going to steal from Dr. Dustin Sulak, one of my colleagues, who says, don't be afraid to go all the way. So you can push the dose. Look, I have people just recently treated someone, one of my longtime patients, who uses cannabis for like wellness. He's 89, 90 years old. He's in general pretty good shape, takes cannabis in a tincture form, but he recently developed gout, mm. which if you're not familiar is a very painful condition where uruic acid builds up in your joint and just wreaks havoc, you know. Um, so he had seen a number of doctors. They all gave him medicines that he didn't want to take that had a list of side effects. So I encouraged him to try CBDA at very high doses. And what does that mean? He took 100 milligrams in the morning and 100 milligrams in the evening. And within about five days, his gout, was, it, gout pain was resolved. And wow. he called me to tell me, I can't believe that this worked and it worked so well. So I encourage people to try different things. Don't be afraid to go high on the dose. Of course, THC, there's a much smaller window for dosing. And you want to kind of tiptoe up a little more slowly so you don't have an unpleasant experience. But all of these can be helpful for anti-inflammatory effects. And one thing that people shouldn't be afraid of is using blends because it appears that you can get away with lower doses because mm. these compounds work what we call the entourage effect or synergy, and they can enhance each other's benefits. 
and minimize the, the risk of having to take, you know, much higher doses. Yeah, absolutely. And I recently talked with um, Dr. David Meary, who I'm sure you know from the, um, the, the conference circuit, and he was talking about how the cannabinoids can work on similar receptors and sort of overlap in, and sort of complement each other with the whole entourage effect. So that makes perfect sense that um, using sort of more of a whole plant extract that has uh, a wider breadth of cannabinoids could, could give a, a better result. So I think a good segue here um, would be to talk about opioids since you already touched on it and it also being a, a pain reliever. Um, let's talk a bit about um, opioids. How does um, their use differ from folks who are using NSAIDs? Um, and again, how can cannabis be a good substitute there? Right. So they both fall under the category of pain relievers, right? Right. But NSAIDs are working more as an anti-inflammatory by blocking um, production of pro-inflammatory compounds. And opioids work more by blocking, actually working through the central nervous system, your brain, mm. and through your spinal cord by blocking the pain messages that the body is sending to the brain. And so um, now, interestingly enough, opioids are anti-inflammatory in their effects. There are some studies that show that, but they're not really used for anti-inflammatory. They're really used for those types of pain that are considered, you know, difficult to control type of pain, you know, cancer pain, um, post-surgical pain. Um, it, when you re read the research, though, you know, we know that people are using opioids for long-term chronic pain relief but they don't really work that well for that. And there's multiple studies that have come out and said, we got to find something else. And, you know, cannabis is a great option um, in that. Uh, can, uh, both can, uh, cannabinoid receptors and opioid receptors are kind of located anatomically close together in um, our brains. And what's interesting about that is that they can influence each other. And so, um, remember, opioids have the dangerous side effect of um, blocking your ability to breathe, right? They, what's called, what we call in the medical world, respiratory depression, stops you from breathing if you take too much. Um, and what's interesting about this kind of combo of the receptors is that if you target each receptor, opioid receptor and cannabinoid receptor, you can get, again, a kind of synergy because we know that opioid receptors and cannabinoid receptors can influence each other. Um, there's a lot of really interesting research um, looking at it, and it, the science of it is very complex, and we definitely need more research. But there's no question that people can either replace um, opioids with cannabis or can add cannabis as an add-on and minimize the escalation of their opioid use. So remember, with opioid receptors, you can develop uh, dependence and tolerance you might have to escalate your dose, and that's when you start to get into trouble. Mm. And it's uh, we have some evidence to show that cannabis kind of can. And I've had I've had patients like this. They take, you know, three Vicodins a day, morning, afternoon, and night. And now, ten years in, they've never had to change that dose, or even sometimes they can skip a dose because they've added in cannabis. Um, and so I just wanted to quote some studies because so that people understand that this has been looked at in a 2016 survey of almost 1,500 cannabis patients across 18 countries. 
86% reported improvement in pain, and 25% substituted cannabis for opiates. That's pretty good numbers, right? And it's a, it's a, it is a survey, but how else do we measure pain, right? Yeah. Um, another survey from Israel looked at elderly patients specifically because, you know, the older you get, the more likely you are to have pain and chronic pain. They looked at 901 elderly patients um, that started medical cannabis and 93.7% uh, reported improvement in pain reduction from 8 out of 10 down to 4 out of 10 wow. on, on a scale. Yeah, and 20, almost 20% were able to either discontinue or reduce opioids. And sometimes older people, if they're not encouraged by their doctor to reduce, they just kind of stay on their medicine. So yeah. one wonders if we you know, pushed it a little bit, we probably could get some of these people off. And then another survey that came out of California last year, 180 patients with chronic low pain, about 50% were able to stop opioids by using cannabis. And remember, it has to be, you know, you want safe access, legal access, and you want lots of products to be available. So, you know, we're still fighting that battle a little bit to be able. Um, but I think cannabis for sure is um, a strategy to help reduce the opioid epidemic that we have in this country. That's excellent. And I hope you'll share links to those surveys and studies because um, we have a nice section at the, in the show description with uh, additional links so people can easily look at. I think that's that's great information. So again, it sounds like cannabis is really um, where its place here is sort of in the long term use of opioids again, and not so much like you know the acute use, like you were saying, you know, a post surgery sure. type of situation. Sure, hundred uh, percent. For I mean, chronic pain is definitely. Uh, the National Academies of Science came out and said, yeah, chronic pain in adults is absolutely something that the evidence clearly shows benefits, um, yep. despite the poor amount of research that we have. And, you know, in terms of products, when people ask how, you know, I'm using cannabis, it doesn't seem to be helping me. Yeah. Um, there are studies that show that CBD can help with pain and that THC can help with pain, but that the combination is something that can be really beneficial. So I've had a lot of success with what I call low ratio CBD to THC, like a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. or four-to-one. So that means four parts CBD to one part THC. I find that's a very nice uh, um, ratio to help patients. One, because you don't have to take a whole heck of a lot because THC plays a role, but the four parts more of CBD seems to dampen down some of the THC unwanted effects, maybe. Sure. And um, I've even had, look, I have some teenagers in my practice that have some really complex medical conditions. And four to one seems to be that kind of sweet spot ratio that works for patients without um, the risk of being impaired. Remember, when I'm taking care of teenagers, I'm trying to get them back to school functioning, learning, you know, they want to get their driver's license. You know, these are people who are struggling to kind of get their life off the ground and pain is in the way, whether they have a syndrome or they had an accident or, you know, when I say a syndrome, I have some patients that have syndromes that are, have, you know, pain as part of it. And that four to one ratio just seems to be a real nice sweet spot for a lot of those patients. And again, they don't have to take big doses, that synergy is there hmm. and can really help. And now is that typically taken in the form of a tincture or some sort type of edible rather than like a smokable flower? 
That's right. And so um, some of the adult patients, I mean, every now and then you can find some flour that is that ratio. Yeah. If you can find high CBD flour and THC flour, you can blend. You're not going to hit on the four to one probably right out of the gate. I mean, you can kind of eyeball it. But I often tell people who are using um, flour, whether they smoke it or vape it, to blend their strains. I mean, you get mm. blend their products because you can get a really nice effect. Um, in pediatric patients, we use mostly tincture. I don't know really of a four to one edible that I can think of, but in general, um, tincture allows for that. Now, if you're using tincture and you have separate CBD and THC, you look at the label and do the math to figure out what's you know, four part, what ends up being four parts CBD and one part THC. So you can kind of recreate your own. You don't have to find that particular product. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So moving out of the pain arena a bit, um, let's shift to talking about, um, anti-anxiety or anti-depressant medication. Um, so first of all, like maybe explain some of the, the drugs that are typically used to treat those conditions, some of the negative effects of that, and then um, why cannabis might be a good substitute. Right. So um, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, fancy words for basically saying it just lets your serotonin hang around a little longer. And then there's some other medications in a similar category called SNRI, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Um, and for some people, these can be very effective, but certainly uh, not everyone. And often those are the people that I see. Uh, and also those are the people who are turned to cannabis. Um, the side effects from these drugs, again, black box warnings on these drugs for suicidal ideation. Um, and there's some question as to whether or not that caused, you know, a little bit of a uh, kind of over fear when people are afraid, but I kind of would be afraid to take a drug that might make me want to kill myself if I'm already um, yeah. kind of depressed and anxious. So it's, you know, it's fine, a kind of a funny uh, way to treat people. But some of the other side effects, agitation, loss of appetite, dizziness, insomnia, stomach issues, and a big one, especially with young people, but certainly old people as well, sexual dysfunction. So, you know, nobody, it certainly doesn't make you have less anxiety and less depression if you can't have an intimate relationship with, with someone. I mean, that's just, you know, in terms of quality of life, that's very important. So, uh, and again, there was a black box warning. Um, and especially they say for younger people, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there was an article in the New York times a few months ago, um, two physicians who kind of poo pooed the idea that you can't get off of these drugs they have something called a discontinuation syndrome that's been described where like you can't just abruptly stop a drug like Prozac or Effexor, one of these types of SSRIs, because they, you have terrible side effects from removing it, right? And so they label it discontinuation syndrome and they say, oh, it's no big deal, only 20% of patients. Um, but turns out these two, I think they were both psychiatrists. They wrote an article for the New York Times saying, well, we tried to get off and it's really hard to get off these drugs. <laughs> so we're sorry that we did that to told everybody the wrong information. So that's the other thing is when you get started on something, let's just say you're going through a phase, a difficult time in your life, right? Do you actually need this drug? And now when you don't need it anymore, it takes you six months to get off of it. I, I don't know. That doesn't sound great to me. Um, and we don't see that with cannabis. So certainly cannabis can substitute. Uh, 
Uh, there's significant uh, research showing CBD is a potent anti-anxiety. Mm. And of course, the problem with these drugs and with cannabis too is that it can take time to kick in. Nothing's magic. So remember, you're ch asking these drugs to change the neurotransmitters in your brain. So you have to give it time. I do find with CBD that, you know, often people are excited about using it. Maybe it's a placebo effect, but they feel better. Hey, who cares? You know, I'm happy they feel better. Right. Um, THC as well really can work very well for depression and anxiety. Um, dosing matters with THC. Um, and with CBD as well, some people who, let's say, take a low dose of CBD, they take, I don't know, 25 milligram little gummy, and they do it every day for weeks and say, I just don't feel any better. Likely you're underdosing. And again, that goes back to don't be afraid to go higher dose. CBD has this really wide range of dosing. You don't absorb every milligram. So I have patients that respond at 10 milligrams, and I've got patients that need 400 a day. Okay, and that's kind of where THC comes in. If you can't afford those very high doses, adding in a little bit of low-dose THC to it can really make a difference and help minimize tolerance with THC, help minimize any impairment. So again, combination can be very nice. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Oh, and I would one think last that... thing. Sorry, sure. I'm going to interrupt you. One last thing. CBG, cannabigerol. Yep. Um, only on the market now for a few years. I have a lot of patients who report terrific anti-anxiety with CBG. Excellent. Excellent. No, I was just going to say that, I mean, with THC, I imagine you have to be a little cautious in terms of anxiety, because I know a lot of people have um, the opposite effect of, of when they have a high dose of THC, where it actually causes anxiety. And um, I wonder if that has something to do with the biphasic effects of THC that I know that Dr. Sulak and others have, have talked about. Um, so just want to get your thoughts on that. Like, is it, it, again, it's probably best to start low and go slow with something like THC. Right. And it's good to start low with the other ones too, if you're new to them, but you can escalate a little bit more quickly with THC. Mm. You kind of, you want to just go in smaller increments somewhere between one and 2.5 milligrams for most people who are new to it. You don't want to go and take five milligrams and then go to 20. That would not be the yeah. advice. I usually recommend 2.5 milligram for an adult and, and uh, increase in somewhere between one and 2.5 milligram increments to find your sweet spot without you know, um, hitting up against what I call that ceiling dose where you're uncomfortable. So the biphasing nature is very important, very important to understand. Biphasic means that these compounds can have completely opposite effects at different doses. So right. THC in the low dose can be very anti-anxiety. But if you take too much, you can have anxiety and paranoia. And, you know, CBD has biphasic effects as well. You, with CBD, you can have very alerting effects at low dose and say, oh, how do people use this for sleep? I feel wide awake. But right. in much higher doses, it's more sedating. So until you've explored what I call low, medium, and high doses, you really don't know what these compounds do. Um, and so, but one of the other things is that there is a small percentage of the population that just does, in, uh, I think it's something like 20% in Caucasian, lower in other um, races that are, um, that people cannot metabolize THC very well. Right. And so you may fall into that category if just THC does just not sit well with you. And again, you don't have to use THC. You can manage with CBG, CBD, 
Um, even I find THCA can help. There's a very tiny amount of THC in there that's probably doing something. It is hitting your your cannabinoid receptors. But I find, especially in my autism population, THCA works beautifully for reducing anxiety in this in this particular group. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that with with all of these conditions that we're talking about, there is an element of experimentation that goes with with using cannabis, right? Really trying to figure out what product's going to work for you, what dosage, um, maybe timing too. I was going to ask you about that, um, especially if you're taking an edible or a tincture. What about taking with food or the beginning of the day versus the end of the day? What's sort of the best um, great, advice yeah. for that? Yeah, great question. So. Um, if you're taking cannabis sub under your tongue, sublingually, or edibles, or taking a, you know, a drink with cannabis in it, you definitely want to take with food. The studies are kind of clear on this, that you definitely absorb more when you take with food, especially food that contains fat. So they did this study, uh, I think last year or the year before, where they showed that they gave volunteers little THC capsules. And um, they did it on a fat, what they call a fasting state. And then they did it with what they called an American breakfast. So what do you think that was? <laughs> Loaded with bacon fat. Bacon Eggs, yep. bacon, hash browns cooked in oil, you know, lots of fat. And it turns out that um, when they uh, checked levels in the bloodstream, those, those, those who took the, uh, the THC capsules with uh, a fatty uh, meal, or a meal with high fat content um, had higher levels and a longer exposure. Interestingly, in their study, they found it delayed the onset for the cannabis to kick in, but then there was kind of a longer and a more substantial uh, absorption and uh, evidence in the bloodstream. So that's number one. doesn't mean you can't take it on an empty stomach. You can. It's just saying you're absorbing more. Uh, when you take it uh, with food uh, that has high fat content. And remember, a lot of the tinctures have oil base, right? So either either an olive oil or MCT or coconut oil. So the fat's already there, okay? Um, in terms of timing, it's a great question. So, you know, in my book and also when I counsel patients, I kind of talk about first you want to find the dose. And so starting low dose and titrating up when you're not going anywhere, don't do it on a, you know, don't start something new when you, you're starting, a, you know, you have to be at a meeting or something. This is when, you know, your time off. So you can really take the time to assess how you feel. If you feel better with your cannabis, pay attention to how long did it take to kick in? How long did the effects last, right? When did it wear off? How long did it take for the next dose to kick in? Because all of that information is going to be somewhat individual because some people absorb better and quicker. Some people metabolize slower or faster. So, you know, for instance, for me, I know if I take a tincture, it takes about an hour and a half to kick in. But I know people who say it kicks in in 30 minutes. Well, that's going to, if I know, let's say I'm having chronic pain, and I know it's going to take an hour and a half for it to kick in. I am not going to wait for it to wear off right. so that I'm going up and down with my pain spikes. I'm going to know, gee, I know it. So last time I took it, it lasted five hours. So at the four-hour mark, I'm probably going to redose or the three-and-a-half-hour mark. So it's good to pay attention. And oftentimes it's hard to remember. So I do encourage people to journal or, you know, there's websites, there's apps that have this. But you can also just get a, a notebook. And just um, document, took this dose at this time, felt this, and this is how long it lasted. And 
that helps you figure out your timing because there, it's not like we know, for instance, like ibuprofen, you can take every six hours. That's what kind of the drug companies have figured out through extensive research and so on. But your endocannabinoid system is unique to you. It's controlled by your DNA and it's influenced by lots of different things in your life. And so how you respond to cannabis, we have to treat it as a customized medicine or you're just not going to find you know, what's going to work. Yeah, that's great advice. And yeah, it goes back to that whole point. There, There is this element of customization or experimentation that just sort of comes with the territory, but very much worth it um, when you can figure it out. Well, and uh, I say what, what, you know, the price you pay is less side effects right. and, and a chance to use natural medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's great. All right. I want to move along here because I want to be very mindful of your time. Um, Something you touched on uh, was sleeping, um, and I know that cannabis can be very useful for that as well. But I do want to I want to say that um, I personally sometimes find the opposite problem, and you kind of touched on that too with with CBD. Um, sometimes I find if I have too much cannabis, I'm wide awake, I'm wired. So what am I doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, good question. It's dosing. It's clearly dosing. If you're using THC, it's dosing. So the first thing I often tell people is that, in my experience, the best compound for sleep, even though there's lots of people out there that may disagree, is THC. Mm -hmm. It helps with sleep. Now, in the industry, people call it indica strains. Really, when you're talking, it's kind of a misuse or, or you know misnomer. But really, what you're looking at is you want THC in a and you want the terpenes, which we really only touch on. Right. But uh, the terpene myrcene and the, is a um, terpene known to kind of boost the sedative effect of THC. So when you get a combo of THC with a significant amount of myrcene, you can get a nice sedating effect. In addition, you can get linalool in there as well. Linalool is just another terpene found. Um, it's cross-species with lavender, and it's very calming and relaxing. And often, if we can alleviate anxiety, people can fall asleep because many of us we're tired, but the brain won't turn off because we're worried about this and that and the other thing. So um, I do find that THC plus myrcene and linalool is kind of like the first thing that people should try. Uh, there's this myth that CBD helps with sleep, and it can, and, but it appears to be in higher doses. And in fact, there was a study, which I'm, I'll be happy to give you the, um, the reference for, that looked at um, CBD for... Um, sleep and anxiety. And they uh, found that most of the people in the study did get relief of their anxiety and that sustained over time. Initially, people did find some benefit with sleep, but they lost that effect over time. And that's so interesting. But part of that is because I just think, you know, at some point your body kind of accommodates to the effect of CBD. Remember, it's not hitting the receptor directly it works differently and maybe you accommodate to it. So it just doesn't um, help those. And, and remember, why did it help with anxiety? Well, we know it to be a good anti-anxiety. Um, and again, dosing wise, they didn't go super sky high dose. So you're not getting that sedating effect. Um, one thing to say in terms, I mentioned some ratios earlier when we were talking about pain, I do find that for some people, a one-to-one -one ratio for CBD and THC works very well and can help People who, when they take THC and you say, you know, it, it keeps me up, 
what am I doing wrong? It may be that it's just a little too much THC effect. And you may get, I call it, it's a funny thing I say, I, you're like getting too thinky. You just start thinking and you go off yes. on all these tangents. I've heard Absolutely. so many people say that. I've experienced it myself, but it's a, I, I feel like that one to rate, one ratio allows the CB, the THC to do its thing and the CBD kind of keeps it in check from letting you go too far with the THC. Um, but dosing matters. And if you take just a little bit extra THC, sometimes that can actually make you stay awake a little bit more. Yeah. And like I said, some people are super sensitive, especially if you can't metabolize THC. So um, dosing matters. And if you feel like, oh, okay, I took five milligrams of THC, that doesn't seem very high and it's keeping me up. Well, take half of it mm. or even, you know, half of that. Again, you may find that a, a little bit. Now, the other thing is for some people, they're able to take cannabis and then go right to bed, like take it and go lay down with if they inhale. Um, other people tell me they need to take it, relax for a few hours, and then they feel like they can go to sleep. So that goes back to timing. Pay attention to your timing. Try it both ways. Try it right before bedtime. Try it a few hours before bedtime. Because for some people, two or three hours in is when they feel that fi that kind of full relaxation. They feel like the anxiety's down, maybe their pain is down, and they're able to then turn off their brain and go to sleep. Yeah, no, that description of being too thinky. Yeah, I've definitely been there. And I wonder, too, because you said that sometimes CBD can be used to sort of counteract those effects. If you had, say, um, a CBD vape or flower or something, when you kind of have that feeling happening, could you use that and it could sort of help balance you out? Sure. You certainly could try that. There's no question that people do that. Sometimes if they feel that they got, they took too much THC, they try to counteract it with CBD. They work a little bit opposite of each other um, mm -hmm. in, in their mechanism of action. So sometimes, you know, that can work out. One other thing I hope I could mention, Ben, is that um, for CBN, so cannabinol, there's a lot of CBN on the market now. CBN is the breakdown product of THC. So right. when THC ages or THCA ages, what you end up having is CBN, which is cannabinol. Um, years ago, somebody kind of posted somewhere that it helps with sleep and then kind right. of took off. And I have to say, clinically, I just haven't seen great results. Here and there, I've seen a patient who says, oh, yeah, it helps with sleep or um, when I combine it with THC, I get better sleep, but I just haven't been that impressed with it. If you read the research on it, the, and again, limited research and much of it old, there's just really no evidence whatsoever that it seems to promote a sedating experience. So I just want people to, there's, it may not be anything wrong with you. You may be getting misinformation. Interesting. Um, in, uh, you know, when your product where they say it's for CBN for sleep, um, there's really no true scientific evidence that, um, that is, that it really does promote sleep. And I have to say that when you look in the research, there is so little about sleep as a primary effect in terms of, um, human clinical experience, I mean, or clinical trials, it's just, it's usually a secondary thing, like you're studying pain and then you ask people secondary symptoms, to, you know, is your anxiety better? Is your pain better? You know, interpersonal relationships, all that kind of stuff. But it's really interesting that here we are in 2021, this plant's been around forever, 
California's had, you know, almost 26 years of medical cannabis. And I still can't quote studies on cannabis for sleep because there just really aren't any. Yeah. No. And and I guess that makes sense if, if you're using cannabis to treat your pain or your anxiety and, you know, you're having less pain and less anxiety, you're feeling better, you're going to sleep better. Right. So I guess. Oh, there's no question that that that's a component of it. And, and, um, it seems that, um, when you really look at some of the data that's out there in terms of surveys and so on, that is what people are reporting is that my, I feel better. My back is not hurting. You know, my joints aren't hurting. I don't have this throbbing. And remember too, that if you're busy during the day, you're not really paying attention. And when you lay down at night is when you go, Oh, my back is killing me. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So it would be nice to be able to control the pain and also all the anxiety that we're all been living with regular anxiety and then added anxiety the last number of years. And um, to be able to eliminate that just allows you to, to turn off at night when you need to sleep, you need that, that restorative um, sleep, or you're just not going to function great the next day. Absolutely. All right. Moving on to, to the last um, drug that you had mentioned here for that we could use cannabis to substitute alcohol. Um, so again, I mean, I guess we're, we're talking about sort of using it uh, alcohol as a way to unwind or decompress after the end of the day. Um, why do you think cannabis might be a better option? Yeah. Well, and so let's just talk about alcohol. There's no like equivalent to an endocannabinoid system in our body for alcohol, right? right. It doesn't have a target. It does stuff to us but it doesn't have a target system. It's the cause of many medical conditions, including causing, it's a direct cause of like seven cancers. It causes cirrhosis of the liver. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of drinking, but it's not my favorite thing. When you're, when you go through medical training, you really do see a lot of hideousness from alcohol, you know, chronic pancreatitis, DUIs, domestic violence, all kinds of crazy stuff. And then, you know, experts have reported that there's no real safe amount of alcohol, but why do people turn to it? And exactly what you said. It's legal, right? Yeah. And it's easily accessed and it can numb you. And when you ask people who are abusing alcohol why they're using it, they'll tell you it helps with their, they feel at least initially it helped with anxiety, depression, and pain. Those are the main reasons that people use alcohol. And so, um, and I think too, we can lump in PTSD in there as well, because I think a lot of people do turn to alcohol. Um, anyway, um, I want to point out a great article. So this article was written back in um, 2004 by a doctor by the name of Dr. Todd Micaria. And if you don't know Dr. Todd Micaria, so he was one of the first doctors in California who, after the law was passed in 1996, who was willing to put his license on the line and treat patients. He was a psychiatrist with a very long esteemed career He understood cannabis and he wanted to help people with it. And so he wrote an article published in 2004 and the article title is Cannabis as a Substitute for Alcohol. Hmm. So it's a wonderful article. I really encourage people to read it. You go to Google Scholar, put in cannabis as a substitute for alcohol and you can write Dr. Todd and you'll find it. So he documented 92 patients that he successfully treated who were able to substitute cannabis become, quote, sober off of alcohol. And, you know, from a medical approach, this is what we call harm reduction, right? We don't have cirrhosis of the liver with cannabis. We don't see, 
you know, cannabis causing cancer. We don't see cannabis causing cardiovascular disease or chronic pancreatitis or, you know, uh, people beating up their family members from cannabis. So again, it's a harm reduction approach that he took. Um, but I just want to say something that just really stood out to me. And I reread the article in preparation to talk with you. And he, he made this very interesting observation that the patients recognized that alcohol was damaging them physically and emotionally and that cannabis was doing the opposite. It was making them feel both physically and emotionally well. I mean, think wow. about that. Yeah. You're going to put a substance in your body. It should make you, it may, even if it's a brief happiness from, let's say, getting drunk, long-term what ends up happening, I have yet to meet an alcoholic who, you know, they don't want to go through the detox, but if they could quit, they would quit on a dime, but it's mm -hmm. not that easy. And it appears that cannabis can help people. So what he did was he encouraged people who had cravings for alcohol every time they had a craving to use their cannabis. And eventually what happened was it kind of shifted over from alcohol use to cannabis use. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, certainly when you look at the costs to society of alcohol and cannabis, I mean, very low cost with cannabis, especially since they're trying to they're hopefully stop arresting people for it. <laughs> but in terms of medical, certainly alcohol is a much larger cost to society. Um, and and, and and the question becomes is why why does it work? Well, because it is treating these underlying conditions that you may have wanted to use alcohol for. And so, again, I just really encourage you to read the article, all those people listening. It's a great article, and he just makes a lot of really interesting points and um, even goes into the history. It, cannabis was being used to treat the DTs, delirium tremens, which comes from withdrawal from alcohol back in the 1880s. Wow. How do we ignore that in 2021, right? Yeah. No, now that we great, have some science. <laughs> and it's a great point that you make that, you know, cannabis can help with some of these underlying conditions that folks are suffering from to turn to alcohol for sort of that, that numbing effect. But instead of, you know, replacing one numbing effect for another, they're actually um, improving it. Well, and he writes this little part about it where you just get blotto and it disinhibits you and you kind of go off the deep end with alcohol, right? You know, mm -hmm. you just have this kind of outburst where cannabis makes you contemplative, helps you yes. look inside, maybe gives you some perspective on, you know, a situation that you're struggling to deal with. And it, it's just a complete, you, you can't compare them. They're not equal, right? You, you, again, you don't have it an alcohol system in your body that is a target. We make cannabis-like compounds in our body for a reason. It's to help to balance us, to keep us in homeostasis. And all you're doing when you're taking cannabis is augmenting that system. We don't have that with alcohol. So it's just important for people to separate because for all these years, you know, um, law enforcement and everybody else wants us to lump them together as drugs of abuse. And I'm sorry, Cannabis can be abused, but certainly cannabis is medicine. Alcohol is not. Absolutely. That's a great point. And you're right about cannabis being very contemplative. When, I, when I'm having those um, experiences where I'm too thinky and laying in bed awake, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely auditing myself. And uh, <laughs> I have a, a nice to-do list the next morning. But that's okay. Um, it gives you perspective. It gives you it, a it chance does. to kind of step back. And for a lot of people, they'll say to me, it removes the emotion so I can actually make a decision without being so emotionally engaged. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it is great for that. All right. So th thank you, Bonnie, for, for all of this. This has been great. And before I let you go, I do want to talk about um, the new publication that you were recently a co-author on um, that was investigating using cannabinoids to treat children with autism spectrum disorder. So tell us a bit about that and um, tell us, is this going to be part of your CanMed 2022 presentation? So yes, I will include it in my CanMed uh, presentation. So I joined forces with a company uh, called Canformatics, and their website's canformatics.com if you're interested in looking at their what they do. Um, but basically, they measure what's called cannabis-responsive biomarkers from your saliva, um, which can determine your response to medical cannabis. So we're in the early stages of this. We're still doing research, but it's been about three years of R&D. And so let me explain, you know, the, the research real quick, and then you can kind of get what I'm talking about. So I have many patients in my practice with autism, and we selected out a handful of them who were already on a regimen of cannabis that seemed to be helping them for at least a year. Okay. So we've established that these are patients who respond to medical cannabis. And what we did was, you know, going through a rigid scientific method, we recruited them plus, uh, so there are about 15 children with autism. And then we recruited nine children, what we call typically developing. So no autism, no epilepsy, that kind of thing. And what we did was we collected saliva from all of them. And in the group with autism, we collected the saliva before they got their morning dose of their cannabis medicine. And just be aware, they were all on different customized regimens. They were not on the same product or the same regimen, some on CBD, some on THC, some on THCA. So it was a, a lot of different uh, regimens. And then what we did with the children with autism is after they got their morning dose, we waited to what we called the peak effect when most parents felt it was about an hour and a half after they got their morning dose and we collected saliva again. And then we looked at the biomarkers in the, from the morning, you know, comparing the pre-cannabis dose um, biomarkers and the post. And what do you mean biomarkers? So these are compounds that reflect um, chemical pathways in your body. So for instance, something that people might understand is a typical biomarker in men is PSA. They get a PSA test. It looks for prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you go get your blood work, they draw your PSA and if it's elevated, you know, they start the workup to see if you have prostate cancer. And then let's say you do have prostate cancer. They follow the PSA level over time to see, are you responding to treatment? Did it go down? Did it shoot up? Reflecting that the cancer is active again. So biomarkers are already being used in science, you know, quite a bit and for a lot of things, including you know, uh, inflammatory conditions and cancer and so on. So this group of what we call cannabis responsive biomarkers were already kind of shown uh, before our study to respond to cannabis. And so a handful of them that we looked at for children with autism, one's called NAA, N-acetyl aspartate, and it's a reflection of kind of neuronal brain dysfunction and inflammation. We looked at something called spermine, which measures kind of pain response, cortisol, which measures stress response, mm. glutamine, which is a neurotransmitter. Anyway, what we found was that in all the children in the study, that once they took their medical cannabis, um, that their 
And by the way, the typically developing children, when we collected their saliva, that kind of established what we call the physiologic range, okay? So between mm -hmm. two certain data points with a mean tells us, okay, within here is kind of what we're looking for uh, to see if it corrects to that. Um, we saw a major shift in the biomarkers of the children with autism towards this physiologic range of the typically developing children. So this is clear-cut objective data showing that medical cannabis in this particular cohort was correcting this kind of abnormal chemical pathway biomarkers. Um, what we also saw was that each child's you know, biomarker um, uh, pattern, let's say, was very different. Um, and so it, it's just, there's so many people out there saying, you know, we need proof that it works, right? And so here is some objective data. I take a parent's word for it. If a parent tells me my child stopped, you know, putting their hand through the wall and stopped self-injurious behavior and is sleeping through the night, you know, look, I have very close relationships with my families. I know when things are going well, because they tell you, but when it's not going well, they tell you too. But for those out there who want a little more proof, this is objective data showing that we can correct some of the abnormal chemical pathways by using cannabis. And remember, anti we just talked about this, anti-inflammatory, helps with pain, helps with stress. All these biomarkers were completely off the charts at some of these kids, and they corrected. So it's very exciting to be able to show this in an objective way. Um, and so I'll definitely be talking about it more. This is our first paper. We got so many data points that we have a second paper coming out. We're very excited about that. So, um, and somebody might ask, well, to what end? And so the way I look at this is that potentially down the line, this would help me optimize treatment for patients so I could get a baseline before we get started, maybe mm. three months in, measure this. And again, it's saliva. It's not invasive. A parent could collect the saliva at home, mail it in. Um, and then we could measure to see what biomarkers are improving. Is inflammation down enough? Do we want to add in maybe CBDA to help with more inflammation? You know, that kind of thing. So we're not there just yet, but that is my hope that we'll have some objective data, the same way we use lab data now to try to help us make clinical decisions. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really encouraging. And now I'm curious, we were talking about the different biomarkers and how after the cannabis treatment, it kind of got more to the um, sort of the baseline mean that you were looking for. I'm curious, was the cannabis increasing the levels of those biomarkers, decreasing or combination of both? Since we know that, you know, yeah. you know, the endocannabinoid system is sort of a, a regulator. I'm curious if, it, if you saw um, both effects. Yeah, we did. And that's so amazing, yeah. right? So when... Yeah. The, when the chemical was low, it seemed to boost it back to the mean or towards the physiologic range. And if it was high, it brought it down. Again, mm -hmm. going back to that idea of homeostasis, balancing. And that's one of the most exciting things that I saw because, you know, you read all these articles and we've, we've got all these um, brilliant scientific minds that have written papers and I read it all and it's like, oh, it's all about homeostasis. And then here somebody says, ah, I don't know, I'm going to challenge that theory? How do we know that's what it does? How do we, you know, and here in this research, we see that we can see it, you know, for instance, let's say a biomarker was like minus five, a standard deviations below the mean, it would bring it up. 
-hmm. Or if it was plus 40, it would bring it down. So there you go, getting right back to that, you know, and it didn't bring everything into alignment, like by no means, but certainly the overall um, results that we saw clearly show that these compounds are, are homeostatic and, and helping patients achieve that. And, you know, someone might say, well, these are kids who are already doing well and so on. But remember, too, that their biomarkers before they got their medical cannabis dose and we, had, we didn't have them take the cannabis, you know, we had like at least an eight hour washout beforehand which we know that you'll metabolize a lot of that out of your system by then, that they were kind of starting from scratch in the morning before they got their dose. So, um, and of course, you know, it would be nice to repeat the studies. Uh, The the next study that we're going to try to look at is is how uh, biomarkers for neuropathic pain to see if there's a, a improvement in that. And if so, you know, how does that work and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of exciting um, uh, value here and utility with this, this type of um, objective um, uh, measurement. Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, we need, we need more data. So thank you so much for contributing that. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about it at CanMed. So, all right, Bonnie, I definitely kept you over the time that I, I promised I would keep you. So thanks so much for, um, for doing this is some great information. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of benefit out of this. Um, before I let you go, please do share any um, social media or websites or any ways that people can stay in touch with you and keep up with uh, everything that you're working on. So my website is canacenters.com and um, on social media, uh, Bonnie Goldstein, MD, that's on Instagram. And then LinkedIn, I think, is under Bonnie Goldstein. I don't do much on Twitter, so it's mostly Instagram where I try to post some, you know, informative things. Um, but also the name of the article, if anybody's interested, and I'll definitely um, send you the link, um, Cannabis Responsive Biomarkers, a Pharmacometabolomics-Based Application to Evaluate the Impact of Medical Cannabis Treatment on Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. And again, it was published last week. Um, and then also look for the paper coming down the line in the next few months. Thanks again, Bonnie. Um, and I can't wait to see you out in Pasadena for CanMed. Looking forward to it. Hopefully we'll, we'll get there. I hope We're nothing gonna stops it. We're us. We're doing it this year. We'll <laughs> okay. be there. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Ben. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Canformatics. Our next episode will drop January 19th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, I hope that you will stay connected with us on social media, join our Facebook group, and check out the CanMed archive. And of course, if you haven't yet bought your tickets for CanMed 2022, do it now when we look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena this spring. All right, that's it from us. Thank you for joining us for another CanMed Coffee Talk. We really do appreciate all the support. We hope you stay safe, stay healthy, and you'll come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.